Welcome to the second season of SeaTech Voices, The Risk Perspective, the podcast that brings you expert insights to today's hot topics in healthcare cybersecurity, compliance, and privacy. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. A transcript of each episode can be found at Synergistic.com. And now for the show. Hello, and welcome back to The Risk Perspective. We're back this week for part two of building a security program from the ground up with Jesse Fasolo, the Director of Technical Infrastructure and Cybersecurity at St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson, New Jersey. Also with us is David Finn, Synergistics EVP of External Affairs and Information Systems and Security. Hey, Jesse and David, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. David, I'm going to pass you the mic right away to kick us off and pick up from where we left off in part one. Thanks, Lauren. I'm actually not going to pick up where we left off. I'm going to back up a little bit. We were having a great discussion in part one, and I want to pick up the end of that discussion. We were talking about security tools, and, and it reminded me of the early days of the massive EMR rollouts, and we saw a lot of clinical portfolio rationalization. You could put in Epic and get rid of, you know, 19 other clinical systems. And so, Jesse, my question for you is, is like the EMRs, we want all our security tools talking to each other. But just like we learned with those clinical apps, interfacing is not really integration. So, so what do IT and security leaders need to be looking for and looking out for as they expand their security tool set? I think tool set, you know, you think about toolbox and you think about how many tools we all have in our own toolboxes when it comes to security. And I think it's it's not a matter of how many, it's about the quality of those tools and if they're optimized and if you can actually make use of them. Far too often, I find that individual organizations or even uh, St. Joe's for that matter, when I came on board, had these great tools that did not really work. They were not optimized. They didn't reach the capability or extent that they should have. And in in a result, they they can't be used. So then when you're talking about other tools and integrating them, yes, an interface from one tool to another to send data is not really integration. But now we talk about cross-collaboration where there's tool sets and tools that are out there that actually integrate on an either an API level or a, a software level where they're sharing data. One tool can actually help another tool determine or identify and block or isolate a system. And that's the that's the key right now. Folks in my seat need to look at the tools that they have and say, how do I make these tools all work together instead of have independent tools? And so far, I've done very well. For example, we have a CrowdStrike product that's integrated with our Proofpoint email security product. It's also integrated into our network access product and vice versa. Also, our uh, internet firewalls are Palo Alto. So if you could imagine that our Palo Alto firewall sees a vulnerability and triggers the network access control to shut it off immediately upon any identified uh, vulnerability, then, you know, it's hands off. It's almost automated. So that's what I'm looking for when I'm looking at tool sets and, you know, the integration thereof. And and just real quickly, was it useful having a third-party consultant in identifying priority needs for tools or for looking at specific tools in specific areas? Yeah, of course. 
you know, every department, um, every every individual leader will be looking at tools based on their own history or their own experiences or uh, what the new latest and greatest tool is on the trend market or the, the hype curve. And not necessarily that's the right one for you. You should also take a view from a risk perspective. If your risk is higher in an area because you're lacking on a tool or a process or a program or a policy, you should be looking at that immediately before going out and investing in a product or a tool that not only do you have to train or develop or coach your staff on, but implement and, and go through the process. And, and now you you have this new tool that probably overshadowed others as well. So yeah, I would say before moving forward with a new tool, look at the ones that you have, base it on risk, use the partner's information, use your standard that you're trying to follow and um, fill in the gaps. Uh, amen to that. I'm going to declare our tool discussion now complete and, and move on to my next topic, which is a direct segue from the, the tool discussion, and that's medical device security. Medical devices are not your ordinary IT device. They have impacts on clinical workflows. They have direct financial impacts. If your MRI is down and we saw some PET scanners attacked across the U.S. just this week, and direct patient care, really, patient safety as well as quality of care. And, and you cannot fix them in the same way as you do a, a laptop or a desktop or a server in the data center. So where does medical device security live at St. Joe's, and, and where do you think it should in, in an ideal world reside? The security overall relies, information security specifically kind of falls to me. The biomedical or medical devices live with the operations team and or our biomedical team uh, that reports up to the operations. So um, I, I think right now it should reside in an information technology, information security world, because I think we have better handle on the security and vulnerability and how to, how to uh, address them. Yeah, and as you pointed out, it's not just the IT team and it's not just security. There's a, a lot of other teams. There's clinical engineering, there's asset management involved about that. So if you don't have an ideal world, how do you get all those different groups working together to manage biomedical devices and the security around them? Uh, patients. <laughs> I would uh, Not the kind that are in bed, though. No, no, no. But I would say, um, you know, while while networking, uh, IT networking, IT security, um, they're they're definitely a more direct approach to remediating security vulnerabilities on medical devices. We've known that that does not work for patient care or the operations teams, right? So I think it needs to be on, on an open playing field. I think they need to be brought in into the equation, the operations teams. Uh, that that handle this, right? The clinical teams. Those open lines of communications between those teams can take in the form of different various meetings to go through the medical devices, to go through operations, to go through in incidents or issues. But having that teamwork, that camaraderie or that collaboration between the information security arm, you know, trying to secure the devices, but also the operations team that needs to use the devices regardless if there is a vulnerability on it. And, and that's where that slippery slope where, where you sometimes healthcare specifically, you have devices that, you know, 
maybe are controlled by the FDA and you can't touch them regardless of the vulnerability. So it definitely is that collaborative team effort that needs to take place. Sticking with that collaborative theme, I want to move up the food chain a little bit because if they're coming from different areas that they're going to work at an operational level together, but if they don't have the same chain of command, what do you think governance over medical devices or how can that be structured? And and that can be a slippery slope, whichever direction you choose, because they're the clinical engineers are about uh, direct clinical care, but they're on your network and they're they're not great at protecting devices. They're very good at taking care of patients. So how do you build a governance model across functions that that are really very different functions, technical security? versus direct patients. Yeah, it's 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 a different world at times. Um, and even in conversations, it could be definitely difficult to explain the need or the desire to take systems offline and repair them or remediate them. So from a governance perspective, like you said, it needs to be shared. It needs to be across multiple disciplinaries, multiple groups, but there needs to be highlighted committee or individual group of people that are committed to ensuring the safety and security of these devices. And that in itself, uh, that committee, that governance committee around medical devices really needs to look at the risk of these devices. So risk-based decision making, and then bring in the operations team that understands business operation limits thereof to then finally um, understand how can we, as a, as a group, take care of these devices and in an effort to better care for the patient. Yeah, that, that's a great point because, well, the functions may be different. I, I think you get to the heart of the matter. If you're in healthcare, it is everyone's mission to provide patient care. And I guess my last question on the medical devices, I know you've got a medical device project going on. So what are you doing and what drove it and what do you hope to accomplish when it's done? Uh, yes, thank you. So I would say the current project I have is undertaking is deploying a, a medical device security product or platform. We partnered with Medigate. The Medigate platform itself really puts clinical intelligence into its platform. So various teams, including information security, technology, biomed, so we can all understand what's on the network, where the traffic is going, what is it doing, and, and really have a good catalog of what the systems are. The goal of this is really to identify all the behaviors of these devices, the communications, where, where the medical device is communicating to, and build traffic patterns and build policies around those. So in the future, uh, if there is something that needs to be isolated off the network, that we can quickly do that with this tool and this product when needed. And also, I think the biggest part of this and what affects healthcare is life cycle. Understanding what medical devices that are out there and, and your vulnerabilities is one thing, but understanding, hey, we have a thousand devices, but of which 75% are already beyond life, end of life, end of support. And then, then you could start looking at capital funding or uh, life cycle uh, acquisitions to replace or replenish this equipment or look at new vendor or different products. Very good. And, and good luck with your project up there. I'm going to jump not unrelated to medical devices, but almost a beast of its own. I, I want to talk a little bit about third-party risk management. Even before COVID, it was already the number two attack vector in healthcare. And COVID just seems to be making that worse. And we're seeing third-party attacks outside of healthcare. But with vaccines, with remote work, uh, even remote care, 
it's just getting worse for healthcare and for everyone. What is a security professional supposed to do when this is clearly an acquisition and purchasing issue, but the security guy is going to get the blame for it? I think the question itself explains a little bit here where it is a purchasing and acquisition problem where, you know, in the end, the blame is definitely on the security team that they didn't remediate the vulnerability and and someone uh, infiltrated the network or took data um, of, of that nature or something like that. So I think first off, information technology or information security needs to align themselves with the purchasing or value chain departments and legal and compliance to ensure that when purchases are kind of going to them, that they need to understand everyone needs to have a current third-party assessment and risk assessment to understand what it is we're buying, especially if there's IT involvement or data, the sharing of data. It needs to be forefront before the purchase is made. And from a legal perspective, the BAA and the contract and the terms need to outline certain protections as well. So yes, I think getting in front of purchasing, letting them know that to safeguard our environment and the company in general, um, you need to put protections in place and it starts with purchasing. And once that's aligned, then what I've ha- what I've done here is you start getting uh, all of these purchase requests coming in through purchasing, but then they check with you, or you embed your process into their own where they do a check to make sure that there's a current third party assessment or risk assessment done, and what the decision there is after. And you catch a lot. You you have the ability to catch a vendor, identify if they have any risk or you know, breaches, previous breaches or bad habits, and then you could um, make a better decision before you move forward. You actually answered a couple of my other questions. You've kind of described the team. You need legal and compliance and purchasing and IT and probably general risk management, maybe the general counsel. And you've described what you need to do to kind of get in front of the purchase and acquisition process. But most healthcare organizations have more than five or 10 vendors. How do you prioritize who you're going to address? Because you can't assess them all, the the ones that are already there and the ones that are coming in all at the same time. So how do you prioritize vendor risk? From a priority perspective, uh, it's definitely the, the ones that you're sharing your protected data with. Right. So not every vendor has access to your data, your personal information or your your PHI or protected data. So those are the highest risks, those that have direct access, those that are hosted outside are high risk, right? Because you don't know what controls they have in place versus your own protection, your own controls, right? So if it's a system or solution that I have on my presence, I would put that as a less priority versus one that is hosted in a third party that I don't know how they're how they're hosting it, what their security controls are. And then thereafter, it would be, to your point, you can't do them all and you have to try and you have to do your best, but anything clinical and uh, facing for patients I think is the is one of the biggest, right? So if it has the the capability of affecting patient care, you should be understanding the risk that's associated with it. And in healthcare, we've had to deal with this really since the final omnibus rule uh, when covered entities became responsible not only for their business associates, but downstream contractors and subcontractors. We're beginning to see that at the federal government level with CMMC for the Department of Defense. And we've seen a focus from the Biden administration on on cyber as well and third party cyber. Now, a, a lot of this started, CMMC started before the solar winds incident, and you'll have to pardon the expression, but 
that has put a lot of wind in the sails of third-party risk management. So, so what are you guys doing uh, at St. Joe's? Do you have pre and post acquisition assessments? And, and how do you manage ongoing assessments for, for like I said, I, I'm guessing you have more than five or 10 vendors. We have an unlimited list of vendors. <laughs> and it's, it's a lot of industries, especially healthcare, you find that that's a common place. As far as pre-assessment, post-assessment, pre-assessment, uh, we try to do, like I mentioned in the earlier uh, question, yeah, we, we try to do them all um, as they come in or as they're necessary or as we prioritize them, again, based on data, based on risk uh, or access to data. But post-acquisition we do, but it's on a ongoing basis. So we try to make sure that there's an, a current third-party assessment. Our uh, policy that we have in place uh, looks to have uh, at least an annual or biannual assessment on file for that vendor. We also do them at contract renewal times. So it's an iterative process where if you're renewing a contract, you're also checking on that third-party assessment. Uh, we also do post-breach. So for example, you just mentioned SolarWinds post-breach assessment to understand and have a documented process or a documented findings with that so we can file that away. And then what that helps us know is a good baseline from there. Okay, post that a year later, all the findings they remediated, and then you kind of you kind of trend them. So I think those are the areas for post-assessment and then pre-assessment, like I mentioned, we try to do them all. Very good. I'm going to ask you, you talked about the team, but I, I'm going to ask you where third-party risk management really lives for you and how you juggle, and maybe the real word should be governed, what is a very complex issue that crosses a lot of lines and, and you have the, the one doc who needs a very specific uh, heart catheter and, and every other cardiologist needs a different one. And how do you work across those lines? Because at the end of the day, it isn't really an IT decision who who becomes a vendor but like I said you're going to be held responsible yeah I think doing the due diligence up front is the most important piece here and those third-party assessments help to get and gather that information it's also to your point uh, the different teams that you have to share that information with it because it's not my decision it's not security saying yes or no to this new cardiology vendor and this new software that they're interested in for example I've, I had an artificial intelligent startup company and they, you know, organization really wanted to move forward with them, but they didn't have the necessary controls in place. So how do you, you take that information, you take the third party assessment data, and then you present it to the operations teams, the legal team, the compliance teams, the risk department for the organization. And then you, you have everyone at the table saying that, okay, moving forward, we understand and we accept this risk. So it goes back to risk appetite, right? So do we do we want to move forward with this vendor because it will make us operationally efficient and make us move forward with patient care versus not being able to to move forward with that product or that that service for the organization? So is there a formal process that all those groups get together and 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 say yes or no at some point, or do you kind of go talk to each of them and and make a decision when needed? I I will be the one to communicate that as well as the my my leadership here. Uh, we have the discussions internally. Um, I definitely need to communicate it, right? So if there's high-risk findings in a third-party assessment, they need to be on the table when everyone's making the decision. And again, doing them early on before the acquisition, before you do demos, before you get people you know, thirsty for the product is, is key. So uh, I think it's taken me four years to build good alliances and collaboration between departments to make sure that when I 
explain some some vulnerability or some high risk situations that it's not it's for something that needs to be looked at and needs to be uh, vetted and understood across those multiple disciplinaries. Any general advice to someone starting out on that journey? It sounds like you've come to a workable solution and and it's going to be different at every place, but any absolute must-dos or or things to be avoided at all costs? Any high-risk vendor uh, or identified high-risk with previous or current breaches is someone uh, or some some, uh, partner that you may want to postpone that acquisition. Um, And I think letting those other teams understand that and reinforcing that through education or information in some in some form or fashion is the first step for anyone that wants to start off. And again, having those ongoing conversations. Ultimately, we do 50 or more assessments uh, on average a quarter. You know, taking those and identifying uh, via a matrix which ones are mid-level, which ones are high, and communicating that in a summary uh, to those other teams. So everyone knows um, that that here is the baseline, here is where they're at. And then you can have deeper conversations there up, right? So what's more high risk and more um, concerning to information security where that may not be an organizational high risk to them. And, and I think that's that that's that uh, conversation that needs to be had. So earlier, the better. Well, and, and that's a perfect setup as, as we move into my last question area, which is really combining the medical device issue with with this third-party risk discussion. And obviously, clinical engineering medical devices can be very high risk, not only from a patient perspective, but from the network perspective. So how do you guys integrate third-party risk into the acquisition process around medical devices? So again, um, IT and IS uh, needs to be in in the fold when acquisitions are being made, especially on devices that are network connected. I, I think far few in between that you know individuals or organizations look at cost savings um, on different products, but then fail to do their pre-assessment work or their due diligence on the products. And that gets as deep as the firmware level and what current vulnerabilities and their life cycle. Um, or their roadmap of product development, all are items that that really need to be um, understood before you acquire those. So I think knowing who you're buying from, knowing the product, if the product itself is secure, is is really important. And then from a medical device partner perspective, I think again following through and doing the same third party assessments that you do for other vendors for all medical devices, knowing that a medical device touches not only the network but also the patient, um, it should be in your priority list. And, and I'm guessing just based on the way you talk, Jesse, that you lead those. You, you obviously have clinical engineering engaged, but but you jump out in front of those usually and look at the security piece and then engage clinical engineering if you're finding risks and stuff. So what what do you look for in, in a medical device vendor? And do you put security, any contractual uh, requirements around security or IT maintenance of those devices in, in those contracts? Absolutely. So to start off with, with any vendor and also inclusive of medical device, Devices, you're looking for their compliance against HIPAA, right? We're, we're a healthcare system, so you want to ensure that there's HIPAA compliance. There's, if we're following NIST, you want them to also uh, align with that or high tech. From a breach history perspective, you want to make sure this organization or this uh, vendor or manufacturer of these medical devices has a very good, solid history and background 
no previous breaches. What is their employee history on the technical side? What is their patching program? What is their firmware update? What is their software uh, lifecycle, right? SDLC from a communications to the customer. Uh, before I uh, want to you know, uh, go down the path of purchasing or acquiring anything, I want to understand their communications to their uh, to their partners or to their customers. So how often am I informed of your breach? How often am I informed if you have loss of data or how soon am I informed? You know, ensure, and you talked later on about contracts, uh, ensuring that that communication is in that contract as well as others. Incident response, I would want to know what their incident response program is. I would want to understand their data security uh, in their organization, because if they're not secure in their organization, you could assume that their product security is, is at fault as well. To the contract area, I would say now nowadays HIPAA regulation as well as high-tech requirements uh, is a must to have in all contracts uh, that is sharing data or IT responsibilities. So it goes back to liability. Having SLAs is important as well for medical devices, right? If a vulnerability is determined or identified, how soon will they re resolve and remediate it if possible? Uh, those are the areas that I would uh, look at immediately or want to know um, before going down the path of, of acquisition. Yeah, you raise a really good question, Jesse. You talked about the the vendor's IR plan when they have an issue. But one of the things I don't see most hospitals doing, even the ones who do IR exercises and and develop runbooks, I don't see them address the issue of medical devices. Is is that something you guys have built into your IR plan? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, part of part of the IR plan that we have is incorporating this, the new tool that we're acquiring and that Medigate product, that will be part in, incorporated into the IR plan where if need be, these medical devices can be isolated. So as far as an incident response to identify, detect and remediate um, is, is really those, those three pillars that I can do now with this product uh, at a much faster rate than um, typically on a network level, just going and shutting off ports or uh, it, it, that's, that's part of, part of the IR plan. Yeah, usually it's figuring out where this stinking device is first and and now you don't even have to do that. Yeah, and I I, I honestly it, it was one of the recommendations from your organization through our assessments where uh, we started looking down at our medical devices saying, you know, this is um, an issue for us as well as uh, other healthcare systems and we should start looking at that as priority. Well, well, good luck, and we'll we'll be checking in on that project as it goes on. I think we've wrapped up, Lauren, so I'm gonna hand things back to you. And again, thank you, Jesse, for everything. These, these, these have been my two favorite podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Great insights there, guys. Thank you so much for your time and for the wonderful discussion. A note to our listeners, remember to like and subscribe to this podcast. And also feel free to drop us a comment or a question that you may have for Jesse and David. Find us on social media, Synergistic on LinkedIn or Twitter. We will monitor that and make sure Jesse and David get your questions and can answer them. Thanks again for listening.